25 or 6 years ago, I was privileged to be able to um, teach for a year at Shenandoah University as, a, as an adjunct professor of percussion. And most of my duties were private lessons and ensembles and things like that, but I did teach one official class of, full of people rather than just individual ensembles, and that was a class called Percussion Methods. And if you're not familiar with the, the maze of music education classes, this is the class where music majors came who were non-majors, non-percussion majors, to learn how to um, teach percussion skills. So sax players and strings players and trumpet players and piano players and vocalists, they all came in, and percussionists, all came in to learn this very important skill. And you had to do this in all areas. You had to do this in, in high brass and low brass and, and woodwinds and double reeds. You had to do it all across the board so that every band director was learning how to teach those instruments. So it's a pretty crucial class since the first thing most high school band directors are going to do is have to run a percussion ensemble on a marching field. And I was able to teach this class, and as I did, I had a few students who were rarely there and didn't do their homework assignments. And so when we got to the final of that year, I stood with the final already printed in my hands, and I said, for the final, I would know, and I read every question on the page. I flipped it over, and I went to the second page. So I told my students exactly the questions that were going to be on the final. It was a hard final, so I thought that was fair. One of the men who were in my class, I don't remember exact score, but his score on the final was somewhere in the 20 percentile. Last time I checked, that was failing. And he came into my office because this was his last semester, or so he thought, as a music education major. And if he didn't pass this class, he didn't graduate. And he was not a traditional student. He was in his 30s, and he sat in my office, and he wept before me that he couldn't fail this class. This man has not earned anywhere close to a passing grade. We're not talking about two or three percentage points, and, and grace would abound. I would have to give him grace. <laughs> That's how poor the grade was. And I said, I can't do that. And I flunked him. And I got a call from the dean the next week asking me to pass him. And I said, I can't do that. Now, that was an act of lowering the bar. It was set at one place, and I was being asked to lower it, and I didn't do it. Now, I wasn't fired over that, but before I could go back and start teaching the next year, God took us into ministry. So I don't know what would have happened when you sit in the dean's office and you say, I can't do that. But I was clearly being asked to lower the bar to a point that it would have been laying on the ground. I've told you another story in past sermons about standing on the pier of the US, of, of, in the uh, Naval Station Alameda where the USS Enterprise was coming back from a long cruise. And the band was there and all the family was there and all of a sudden we realized that the USS Enterprise, an aircraft carrier, had run aground in the San Francisco Bay and was not moving. After a long cruise with... All the family on the pier, the band saying, it's time for us to go home, and they're stuck out there. Well, the, the captain of that ship was not 
at the bridge. He was down in his stateroom getting ready to see his family. It was a young ensign that was on the bridge. He was responsible to miss all of the, the sandbars in the, in the San Francisco Bay and bring them into port safely. And he got in trouble, but who do you think the most trouble landed on? It was on the captain, who was supposed to get his first star to be an admiral upon his return. Now, he still got that star, but it was delayed by three or six months as a punishment for not having his ensign trained well. That is a raising of the bar, right? It was a, a standard that was set because that captain had the authority and responsibility for everybody underneath him at a different level as the people he commanded. Now, that's more true of life. Life has a bar that the more responsibility that you have, the higher it's raised. Contrary to popular belief, if you look around in our culture, I know it seems like that's, that's um, changing today, but it's not going to change for long if it changes, right? It will go back where the person with the responsibility has the responsibility and the authority to get things done, but their bar might be raised. Well, in ancient Israel, in the worship practices of, of God's people, there was a higher standard for the priests. Their bar was raised. Now, they had to meet the same standards as, as all of the nation. Remember, in the book of Leviticus, what we're looking at is, is the, the whole prescription of how an unholy people dwells with a holy God. Or to be more clear, how a holy God dwells with an unholy people. And God has said, this is the way it will happen, and if you do it this way, I will bless it. But there were people in charge of that worship. There were people in charge of that life. The priests, and among the priests, there was the high priest. And they were responsible for this in a different way than the people. The people were responsible to bring the right sacrifices. The priests were responsible to make sure they were the right sacrifices. The bar was raised for them in the life of Israel. Well, as some of the problems we've had in Leviticus are trying to figure out how it applies to us, we know that today pastors in churches are not priests, right? Can we just make sure that's reiterated right now? Pastors and churches are not priests. We have a high priest who has gone and done the work being the spotless blemish, spotless lamb without blemish so that he is the perfect sacrifice. And we'll learn more about that later today. But pastors do not stand in that place. There is a difference in new covenant believers in how God has structured the, his people. However, there is a sense that the bar is raised for pastors. And here's what I mean by that. In the New Testament scriptures, pastors are not required to be anything in their character that God doesn't require all people to be. Every requirement of a pastor is required of all God's people. The difference is if a pastor or anyone else fails in any of these areas, we're not kicked out of the kingdom. We're not kicked out of the camp. Now, if we fail and are unrepentant and keep on sinning and keep on sinning with no repentance, we may be placed outside of the camp, but we don't lose our status of being in the kingdom. If, if we lose that, then we've never had it to begin with. And that's for all people. But elders, if they fail in certain areas, either to do what they're commanded to do or not to do what they're forbidden to do, if they are marked in the wrong way by any of those, they may lose the ability to be an elder. So in that sense, the bar is raised. So 
we don't take what the priests are doing in the Old Testament and apply it to the pastors, but there is a sense in that we have to understand the difference um, of accountability for a pastor and what happens if a pastor elder um, fails in these areas. And that's as close as it gets. So, as we come into a cha- two chapters in Scripture that are all about the high priest and the priest, we go, what does this have to do with us? Two straight chapters of nothing but directive to priests and high priests, we should just close the Bible and go home and eat early, right? <laughs> We're not going to do that. But we'll look at these two chapters in Leviticus. We'll place them in their context in Leviticus. We're going to look at these commands for priests and high priests in ancient Israel, but we're also going to realize that we are a kingdom of priests. We are called out by God to be a holy nation. We as new covenant believers. And the character of God that prompted these commands in the Old Testament, his character doesn't change. It prompts his commands in the New Testament. And that's why there are commands in the New Testament that use the language of the Old Testament to call his people to the same holiness that he calls the people of Israel. We'll see it in a different way because Christ has come, lived, sacrificed, been risen, and is seated at the right hand of the Father. So it changes in how it's affecting God's people and how it works out of God's people, but the character of God never changes. So it gives us plenty to understand. Well, what we want to do today is see the character of God and see what that means for us. That's as simple as our task is today. Cover two chapters in Leviticus, see the holiness of God in his commands, and ask us what it means for us because Christ has been the perfect sacrifice on our behalf. We're not going to read all of chapter 21 and 22 together. I'll read it in sections. Um, I want to show you that in these two chapters, they're tied together. They're, they're taking us back to what we looked at earlier in chapters 6 and 7 and 8 and 9, um, where the, the, the directions were to the high priest and to the priests. Um, that takes us back into that kind of thinking. If you watched the Bible Project video on Leviticus, you saw that they were kind of bookends this way and this way and this way, working in toward the middle with the uh, Day of Atonement. Well, we've worked through those first half, and now we're working through the second half. We've gone through the, whole, the beginning of the Holiness Code in chapters 11 through 15. That's the beginning, uh, the ending of the first half. And then we have the Day of Atonement, and now we're moving in to the rest of the Holiness Code and dealing with the the priests and the high priests and then the feast days as we head to the end of the book, which we will probably finish mid-December, just in case you're wondering where we are um, looking at. We will finish this before Christmas in time to have a couple of Sundays, um, unless the Lord changes our plans, have a couple of Sundays um, looking at a Christmas text. So, Beginning in chapter 21, we're going to see a couple of phrases. If you did your work in chapters 21 and 22, I ask you to see repeated phrases. And if you'll look right there at verse 1 of chapter 21, And the Lord said to Moses, Speak to the priests, the sons of Aaron, and say to them. So we have this idea, if you look again over in, later on in that same chapter, verse um, 17, or 16, And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Then at the beginning of chapter 22, and the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, then in verse 17 of 22, and the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, we could could divide the chapter according to those statements, or we could divide the chapter, if you look at chapter 21, verse 8, how that ends, 
For I, the Lord who sanctify you, am holy. That occurs at the end of subsections. So that kind of marks out how we should look at the chapter, just as it's organized, as the author organizes it for us. And so I've kind of taken the the closing statement, and it it, it fits perfectly except right there in verses 8 and 9, if you'll look at it. Chapter 21, verse 8, you see that as the closing statement. And then we still see in in verse 9, and the daughter of any priest. Now, all the verses leading up to that have been dealing with the priests. In chapter 21, verse 10, we begin dealing with the chief priest, the high priest. So that is the one place where it's kind of out of place by a verse. Um, The rest of them fall right at the end of chapters. So we could have arranged this into four sections or into six sections. The way I chose to do it is six to show us, to make sure that we see that there was accountability levels and requirements for the priest, but the bar was raised for the high priest. And the whole two chapters is a raised bar compared to the people. So we have that threefold approach to holiness that we have had in so many different ways in Leviticus. We have the people at large, the priest and the high priest. It matches with what the temple and how it was constructed. It matches the heavenly temple and how we see it revealed. So it fits the same pattern that we've seen before. So in these two chapters, we are shown six areas in which priests are to be careful to not profane the name of the Lord who sanctifies them. Six areas in which the priests are to be careful not to profane the name of the Lord who sanctifies them. Remember profane. In the, in the setting of Leviticus, where we start in the center with the, the average Israelite being clean. But they can do certain things to make themselves unclean. If you're clean, you can approach in the proper way the holy. If you're clean but you become unclean, you can't approach the holy. You have to do what, what, how God prescribes to become clean again before you can approach the holy. If we are talking about the holy, anything that denigrates the holy is to profane it. So the high priest specifically and the priest in, at large, they're the ones who are to be in this holy state to approach the Lord on behalf of the people, especially the high priest, where he goes in on the Day of Atonement once a year, and only he goes in to the holiest place. So we are, what, we are seeing how this develops for the priest and what they are doing, and how they are supposed to be careful not to profane the name of the Lord, the dwelling place of the Lord, where the Lord dwells, because he is the Lord who sanctifies them. So you'll see that as the closing statement of each of our six sections, that he is the Lord who sanctifies. So, first, priests should not profane the name of the Lord in their uncleanness or their marriage. That's one through eight. But then also, the second um, way they're to be careful not to profane is for high priests. High priests should not profane the name of the Lord in their uncleanness or their marriage, and that is 9 through 15. So there's two sections, one for the priest, one for the high priest. The high priest, the bar is raised. Let's look at this in the beginning of chapter 21. And the Lord said to Moses, Speak to the priests, the sons of Aaron, and say to them, No one shall make himself unclean for the dead among his people, except for his closest relatives, his mother, his father, his son, his daughter, his brother, or his virgin sister, who is near him, near to him because she has had no husband for had no husband for her, he may make himself unclean. He shall not make himself unclean as a husband among his people, and so profane himself. 
They shall not make bald patches on their heads, nor shave off the edges of their beards, nor make any cuts on their body. They shall be holy to their God and not profane the name of their God, for they offer the Lord's food offering, the bread of their God, before they shall be holy. Therefore they shall be holy. They shall not marry a prostitute or a woman who has been defiled. Neither shall they marry a woman divorced from her husband, for the priest is holy to his God. You shall sanctify him, for he offers the bread of your God. He shall be holy to you, for I, the Lord who sanctify you, am holy. And the daughter of any priest, as she profanes herself by whoring, profanes her father. She shall be burned with fire. Now that's pretty steep, wouldn't you think? So we have this setting. We have already learned that death, anything that is is nodding toward death, should be kept away from God. That's why 11 through 14 was full of all of those different provisions of how to deal with bodily discharge and all those different things that that were the, the scent of, the beginning of, if they weren't treated well or if they didn't progress as they were supposed to, would lead to death. So for a priest... They, weren't, they were required not to be involved in being around a dead body because we've already learned that being around a dead body makes you unclean and you have certain ritual to go through before you're clean again and can approach the holy. So for a priest, they're limited to their near relatives, mother, father, son, daughter, or, and brother, or a virgin sister. So that sister's still at home, doesn't have a wife, hasn't moved to another family. So those are the people that he could be involved in. Still has to go through the ritual of going from unclean to clean when he is dealing with that dead body. Uh, But he is free to do that only for his nearest relatives. But also, he shall not mourn in the way that the pagan nations mourn. You see that in verse um, 5. And we already saw all of this in chapter 19, 27 through 28. All of Israel was prohibited from doing things that resembled or were driven by the pagan nations that God was driving out of the land. And these were the ways that they would mourn. So they were not allowed to mourn that way. For the priests, they were only forbidden to mourn in ways that looked like pagan nations, not their own nation. They were limited in who they could be around as dead bodies and help bury and help do all the work around that, but they still had some provision to be able to do that. Where verse 4 says, he shall not make himself unclean as a husband among his people, I think that's meaning in-laws. You take care of your own father and mother, but don't take care of your in-laws' father and mother. There was no requirement for a priest to be involved in that. It was for family members to do that. So it limited what they were to do. So it limited the amount of uncleanness that would pro- prohibit them from being involved in uh, their duties as coming before the Lord on behalf of the people. So verse 6 is the, is the um, summary. They shall be holy to their God and not profane the name of their God, for they offer the Lord's food offerings. The bread of their God, therefore they shall be holy. Now, Leviticus has talked about this several times in this terms, that this is God's food, but it also separates itself from anything pagan where the pagans actually thought they were physically feeding their gods. That's not what's going on here. It's just the language that was used so that people understood. God didn't need food. Remember, he's already said, if I needed food, would I come to you? I own the cattle on a thousand hills. Why would I do that? So it's, it's language to make the people understand that this is, these are the people who are involved in the sacrificial system. They are tasked to do it correctly on behalf of the people or the sacrifice is not going to be received. 
It also moves into who they should marry. And notice it says they should not marry, in verse 7, a prostitute, a woman who has been defiled, neither shall they marry a woman divorced from her husband, for the priest is holy to his God. Now, I don't think this has as much to do with the woman he's marrying as it does the holiness of his line. Remember, the only people who could serve as priests or come from the high priest, high priest was from the, from the line of Aaron. You, you had to be born into the priesthood. And so if, if a priest would marry someone that would have the possibility of already being with somebody else and it being somebody else's child, it pollutes the line. I think that's the purpose of this, and it becomes more clear when we see the high priest and what, what the um, commands for the high priest are. So verse 9, the daughter of any priest, as she profanes herself by whoring, profanes her father, she shall be burned with fire. Well, that makes sense to us, right? That if, if, the, uh, if the daughter of a priest puts herself out as a prostitute, probably has in mind the temple prostitution, then that would bring shame. It would profane her father, so it profanes the name of the Lord. Now, when it says that she shall be burned, it may be that she'd be burned alive, but it possibly, and I think probably means, death by stoning as commanded, but then there's the act of burning afterward. These are serious things because we're talking about the holiness of God, which cannot be violated, or God does not dwell with these people. We'll look beginning in verse 10. The priest who is chief among his brothers, on whose head the anointing oil is poured, and who has been consecrated to wear the garments, shall not let the hair of his head hang loose, nor tear his clothes. He shall not go into any dead bodies, nor make himself unclean, even for his father or his mother. He shall not go out of the sanctuary, lest he profane the sanctuary of his God. For the consecration of the anointing oil of his God on him, I am the Lord. So we have the bar being raised again for the high priest. They're not to be involved with any dead body, even their own family. Why? Because they wear the vestments. They wear the anointing oil. It's upon their head that God has vested the authority over the priest and over the people to make sure that the people are represented well before God and God is represented accurately before the people. That's the job of the high priest. And they're not to leave at all. Remember, when Nadab and Abihu died, that, that uh, their father, was Aaron, was said, don't, don't mourn at all. There was not to be that. So it's not only just mourning like the pagans. You shouldn't even be involved in mourning. You should be committed to your task. Let the others mourn. It's a fact of keeping him separate. And that's the basic meaning of holiness, right? To be separated from something. So the high priest is to be separate through that time. But, and he said, don't even leave the sanctuary. But in verse 13, we start to see what the Lord says about the high priest and who the high priest may marry. He shall take a wife in her virginity, a young wife, but I think the meaning is one that has not been with another man. Now, notice how the, the requirements in verse 14 are listed in reverse order of the requirements for the priests. The high priest the command is, a wi- he shall not marry a widow or a divorced woman or a woman who has been defiled or a prostitute. These he shall not marry, but he shall take as his wife a virgin of his own people that he may not profane the offspring among his people. For I am the Lord who sanctifies. 
Now, that last little phrase, I think, gives us the hint to all of it, especially for the high priest. No one could serve as a high priest if they did not come from Aaron's line. And so there was to be no marriage outside of their own people and that to be someone who had never been with someone else. It's, again, I think it's less about the holiness or unholiness of the woman and the holiness of God as represented by this office. That's what's being guarded through here. When... Um, the Lord is speaking of the high priest and how they interact with other, for their wives and how they interact with the dead. Well, what's this have to do with pastors today? Well, there is no command like this for pastors, right? And yet, the God who commands this, who is guarding his holiness and telling his people, you shall be holy like I am holy, he tells pastors in the New Testament that they need to be people who have their household in order. They need to be able to rule their own household, or how could, else could they rule the household of God? Just as the Lord's name would be sullied if any of these things happen for a priest or a high priest, the same thing happens within a church where an elder in the church is representative of the people. The elder in the church represents God to the people and the people to God, not in the same way as the priest, but in the role of prayer and ministry of the word, that the, if the pastor's family is not in order, if they're, if they're not functioning according to biblical standards, then they should not be an elder. So it's not driven by this, but the holiness of God is shown in the qualifications for the people who would lead his people in the ministry of the word. So we've seen the priest and the high priest not profaning the name of the Lord in their uncleanness or their marriages, but the chapter ends, blemished priests should not profane the name of the Lord by approaching the altar to offer sacrifice. Verse 16 and the Lord spoke to Moses saying, there's our heading, speak to Aaron saying, none of your offspring throughout their generations who has a blemish may approach to offer the bread of God. For no one who has a blemish shall draw near. A man blind or lame or one who has a mutilated face or a limb too long or a man who has an injured foot or an injured hand or a hunchback or a dwarf or a man with a defect in his sight or an itching disease or scabs or crushed testicles. No man of the offspring of Aaron, the priest, who has a blemish shall come near to offer the Lord's food offerings since he has a blemish. He shall not come near to offer the bread of, of his God. He may eat the bread of his God, both of the most holy and of the holy things, but he shall not go through the veil or approach the altar because he who has a blemish that he may not profane my sanctuary. For I am the Lord who sanctifies them. So Moses spoke to Aaron and to his sons and to all the people of Israel. So here we have a section that makes us a little uncomfortable, doesn't it? So physical defects beyond, beyond any control of the people disqualify them from entering into the holy places to serve, as is their right in their lineage. Well, this makes perfect sense in, in the thinking of Leviticus, doesn't it? Don't, don't think New Testament yet. Think Leviticus. In Leviticus, it makes perfect sense. It's the best that's offered to God. When we get to the end of chapter 22, we are going to see a section where animals could not have blemishes. And you know what? There are 12 blemishes listed for animals, and there are 12 blemishes listed for the priests. They're, they're equally balanced there because those who would come before God, remember, this is that Old Testament setting where God is outwardly um, 
commanding things that show the inwardness of the holiness of these people. So it's not fault of these people. It's the holiness of God that says, you, if it's the fault of people, they'd be put out, right? But they can still partake of the food. Remember, that's how the priests got their livelihood. It's how they got their food um, was from the peace offerings that were to be shared within their family. We're going to deal a little bit more with that in chapter 22. So they were still able to be sustained through the gift and grace of God, but approaching him was forbidden. Now, we know that in the New Testament, this is totally different. In Luke chapter 14, we see that great picture of the banquet. And the banquet, he says, go out and get the people. And there are people that have excuses to come to the banquet. Well, I, you know, I just bought a piece of land or I've got to get married. I have to bury somebody. And so the Lord says, go get other people. And he says in that passage, he said to go get the poor and the crippled and the blind and the lame. Those are the people that they should go get for the banquet. And that whole parable is painting a picture of the kingdom of God. The whole parable is painting the picture of the kingdom of God and the marriage supper of the Lamb we learned about in Revelation when we studied there. So it's clear that when we move into the New Testament, we moved away from the physical and into the spiritual, into the eternal, internal, and away from the external. Now, one of these characteristics, the crushed testicles, you could not be in, in the camp. In any in the nation of Israel, if you had that, because that was getting at the issue of life and death. It was the it was the 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 picture of life and death, and that's what's driven us throughout Leviticus. Anything that moves us toward death moves us away from God, because God is life in everything that He does. Now we're still looking at this, and we're saying, well, what what about what about pastors and their holiness? Can, can a pastor have a deformed leg? Can a pastor have any of these blemishes? When we move into the New Testament and we say that we've gone from the external to the internal, we still see that we, as people, are called to holiness. Now, we're going to be called to holiness because God has offered His Son, who is the spotless Lamb without blemish. And we'll look at two out of many verses later on as we move into the Lord's Supper. But the reason things change is because the perfect sacrifice that God demanded, both in the giver and the give and the sacrifice itself, is perfectly met in Jesus Christ, who is the sacrifice and the priest who offers it. And he is perfect without blemish. He knew no sin. He who knew no sin became sin so that we would become the righteousness of God in Christ. So all of that changes because what God is picturing in the Old Testament is fulfilled in Christ. But God never changes and he still calls these people to be holy and the leaders of these people to lead the way in that. Well, look at chapter 22. Priests should not profane the name of the Lord by eating the holy food while unclean. The marker of the next major section. And the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to Aaron and his sons so that they abstain from the holy things of the people of Israel, which they dedicated to me, so that they do not profane my name. I am the Lord. So th- this, is, this is setting the parameters around the food. Remember, it's called the holy things. When the priests start to eat the food that is given to them from those sacrifices, they are to eat it in the holy place, not to take it in other places. Certain things that their family could eat, certain things that they had to eat. We've learned all about that in those first seven chapters. So this is reiterating what we already know. And when it says that the, 
in verse 2, speak to the sons of, speak to Aaron and his sons so that they abstain from the holy things. It's a really interesting word here, and it's the word that in the noun form where we get the word Nazarite. So people take a Nazarite vow to be separate, to, to not cut the hair on their head, to not partake of, of anything from the vine, not, not wine or grape juice or, or oil or vinegar or anything from the vine, and not to touch dead bodies. They were set aside, that meaning of holiness, set aside, consecrated for something else, and this was the mark of it. That's the verbal form that we see here that they are to abstain. So it's showing us that this is still a picture of the holiness of God before His unholy people. Verse 3, say to them, if any one of all your offspring throughout your generations approaches the holy things that the people of Israel dedicate to the Lord while he has an uncleanness, that person shall be cut off from my presence. I am the Lord. Now that's the principle we've seen over and over and over. If you're unclean, you do not enter the holy. You have to become clean again through the right ritual and then approach the holy one in the right way. None of the offspring of Aaron who has a leprous disease, chapter 13 and 14, we learned all about that, right? Or a discharge, chapter 15, may eat of the holy things until he is clean. Whoever touches anything that is unclean through contact with the dead, we learned about that in chapter 11 and earlier in chapter 21, or a man who has an emission of semen, chapter 15, and whoever touches a swarming thing, Chapter 11, by which he may be made unclean, or a person from whom he may take uncleanness, whatever his uncleanness may be, the person who touches such things shall be unclean until the evening, and shall not eat of the holy things until he has bathed his body in water. When the sun goes down, he shall be clean, and afterward he may eat of the holy things, because they are his food. He shall not eat what dies of itself, or is torn by beast, and so make himself unclean by it. We learned about that in chapter 7. I am the Lord. So nothing here is new, is it? It's all the things that we have learned before, being a reminder to the priest, you represent me to the people, and you represent the people to me, and this is the way I'm saying that you are going to represent my holiness to them. So this is a summary of what we've learned applied directly to the priests. A priest should not profane the name of the Lord by allowing unauthorized people in his household to eat the holy food either. We see that beginning in verse 10. A lay person shall not eat, that is a non-priest, a lay person shall not eat of a holy thing. No foreign guest of the priest or hired servant shall eat of the holy thing. But if a priest buys a slave as his property for money, the slave may eat of it, and anyone born in his house, that is, born of the slaves, their children, may eat of his food. If a priest's daughter marries a layman, she shall not eat of the contribution of the holy things. But if the priest's daughter is widowed or divorced and has no child and returns to her father's house, as in her youth, she may eat of her father's food, yet no layperson shall eat of it. And if anyone eats of the holy thing unintentionally, he shall add a fifth of its value to it and give the holy thing to the priest. They shall not profane the holy things of the people of Israel, which they contributed to the Lord, and so cause them to bear iniquity and guilt by eating their holy things, for I am the Lord who sanctifies them. Now, this is all a reiteration of the people who are supposed to eat and not supposed to eat of the gifts that are given to the priest. Because it's not only the priest who are provided for by the Lord, it's the priest's families as well. 
So if there's a daughter who is married out, she's now the responsibility of someone else. If she has children, those children will take care of her. But if that is not the case and she's moved back into the house like she was when before she was married, then she is the responsibility of that priest in the same way that the slave was the responsibility, but the hired worker was not. And so it just sets it out that these are holy provisions for the people that I have set apart to represent me to the people and the people to me. And this is how they should be eaten. And we've learned all of that before. It's reiterating this in chapter 22 to remind the priests of their duty. And it's all around the holiness of God because we keep seeing this phrase, I am the Lord who sanctifies them. So as we're moving through this, we're seeing, I'm calling you to this holiness, but I have also committed myself to this holiness. Because to be sanctified means to be made holy. So God is saying, I'm calling you to this, but I'm making you this as well. When you you obey me and abide by what I've said, I have deemed that I will receive you as holy. It's important for us to see these connections because this is how we see the connections to Christ. Christ. This is how we see the connections, how God looks at us because of the work of Christ. And it may seem outrageous to us that men with physical deformities or somebody who's just visiting in the house and doesn't know and picks up that leg of lamb at the wrong time, they have to make fivefold or or a, a fifth more restitution. It may seem incredulous to us. But for all the lost and dying world, it seems incredulous to them that we would receive eternal life because a man died on the cross. But yet we know that is the the mystery of godliness right there. We know that this is what God has said will happen. And he said, I will look at you as holy because my son is holy. I will accept you because I accept my son and I accept you in him, being united to him. So if we don't see it here, we don't see what, what miraculous poetry and wisdom we are shown in the New Testament as it expounds before us. Well, look at verse 17. Priests should not profane the name of the Lord by receiving improper offerings from God's people. And the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to Aaron and his sons and all the people of Israel and say to them, When any one of the house of Israel or the sojourners in Israel presents a burnt offering as his offering for any of their vows or freewill offerings that they offer to the Lord, if it is to be accepted for you, it shall be a male without blemish of the bulls or the sheep or of the goats. You shall not offer anything that has blemish for it will not be acceptable for you. See that pattern over and over and over. I have told you what to do. If you don't do it, I will not accept you. I have set before you the boundaries and, and, the, and the rules for you to approach me. And I'm serious about it because this is my holiness protected and you protected from that if you approach me in the wrong way. Verse 21, and, with anyone, and when anyone offers a sacrifice of peace offerings to the Lord to fulfill a vow or as a freewill offering from the herd or from the flock to be accepted, it must be perfect. There shall be no blemish in it. Animals blind or disabled or mutilated or having a discharge or an itch or scabs, you shall not offer to the Lord or give them to the Lord as food offering on the altar. You may present a bull or a lamb that has a part too long or too short for a freewill offering, but for a vow offering it cannot be accepted. 
Any animal that has its testicles bruised or crushed or torn or cut, you shall not offer to the Lord. You shall not do it within your land. Neither shall you offer as the bread of your God any such animals gotten from a foreigner. So any of the animals with defects from a foreigner, since there is a blemish in them because of their mutilation, they will not be accepted for you. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, When an ox or sheep or goat is born, it shall remain seven days with its mother, and from the eighth day on it shall be acceptable as a food offering to the Lord. But you shall not kill an ox or a sheep and her young, and her young in one day. And when you sacrifice a sacrifice of thanksgiving to the Lord, you shall sacrifice it so you may be accepted. It shall be eaten on the same day. You shall leave none of it until morning. I am the Lord. So those verses, a lot of that is stuff that we've already seen. It's a reiteration of how to bring the sacrifices. And if you don't, you will not be accepted. But we have these verses in the middle in, in uh, verses 27 and, and 28. And you wonder, well, why is that there? I have no idea. I don't know the reasonings behind it. There are plenty of people who posit reasonings, and they could all make sense. It could have to do with the compassion the Lord is demonstrating, that his people should be demonstrating as they consider killing animals. It could also have to do with the cycle of sevens that we see so prominent in Leviticus and will continue to see prominent in Leviticus and carried on through that, like we saw in Revelation, the importance of certain numbers. It could also have to do with marking off the eighth day in the same way their children were marked off. I do not know. But I do know that God commanded it and it seems a very loving and compassionate thing for them to obey when it comes to, when it comes to treating those young animals. I'm not going to tell you things that I don't understand and I'm not fully understand the why, but I don't have to, do I? Because for them, it was there and for them, they needed to abide by it. Look how it closes, verse 31. So you shall keep my commandments and do them. I am the Lord, and you shall not profane my holy name, that I may be sanctified among the people of Israel. So the people would reverence God, would recognize His holiness, and the people would be affected by that holiness in such a way that they will live sanctified lives. And it's the priests and the high priests that model that and demonstrate that to the people and also demand it from them as they approach God. I am the Lord who sanctifies you. Again, reminded that all of this is not their unction, it is God's. It is not their, it's their obedience, it's God doing the sanctifying, even as they, now think about how that works for them. They're doing the things that God says will cause them to be accepted by them. It's very easy to say, well, I was good today, wasn't I? I didn't mess up at all. Priests liked my offering, everything was offered right, everything worked great today, it was a good day for me. The Lord says six times in here, I am the God who sanctifies you. You are being obedient to me, but the sanctification is mine. I do it. I am in the power here. I am the one who does it. And it's grace to you because as I sanctify you, I accept you because you've come on my terms. The final verse. I am the Lord who sanctifies you, who brought you out of the land of Egypt to be your God. I am the Lord. Reminds us again of that covenant relationship, right? We, the, God's people have entered into covenant with him. And this is the way it should be working itself out. Now, two chapters dealing completely with the priest that all of these commands do not just transfer right into our lives. But 
the character of God that is behind them and the way he represents himself in the New Testament and the fulfillment of all of these in Christ is important for us because it is Christ who has fulfilled all of these requirements. It is Christ. Listen to Hebrews chapter 7. The former priests, beginning in verse 23, the former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But Jesus holds his priesthood permanently because he, who can, he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him. You hear that? God says, here is the way that you come to me. Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life and no man comes to me except through his own will. It's not what he says, is it? No man comes to me except through Christ. So if we come to God as he says, we trust him because he doesn't lie. We trust him because he has set out a plan and his character hasn't changed. Who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it's, it's, it's continuing, isn't it? Even as we are made holy, it is God who makes intercession on, or Christ who makes intercession on our behalf. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifice daily, first for his own sin and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weaknesses as high priests, but the word of the oath which came later than the law appoints a son who has been, who has been made perfect forever. Two chapters later, in chapter 9, verses 13 and 14, we read, If the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our consciences from dead works to serve the living God? You see how in Christ we move from the physical to the spiritual, from the external to the internal? It is Christ and his work that has done that. Christ is the one who entered into the heavenly places in the heavens, the temple in the heaven, and made the perfect sacrifice that nullifies, it fulfills it, and therefore nullifies all the commandments in chapters 21 and 22 in Leviticus because he has fulfilled them. So we don't have to offer in that, we don't have to work in that way. Now we offer in the way the New Testament says. And guess what the New Testament says? Be holy as I am holy. The same as the Old Testament says. We serve the same holy God. We serve the same holy God who demands and equips his people. So what kind of life must we live? Turn to 1 Peter chapter 2. Now we can look at, at many different passages, but I'm going to limit it here. 1 Peter chapter 2, beginning in verse 9. But you, that is believers, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Behold, 
I urge you, so you see his basis, right? Same language used in the Old Testament because we are God's people. And it's the same language to mark us out as God's people, as a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Beloved, I urge you, verse 7, as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. So you see, we're still representing God's holiness. But only now, instead of representing for the people to God, we are equipped by God to represent His character to the world. When they look at us, they need to glorify God because they see a life that they're not able to live. They see a life that marks us different than them, and it's not our life, it is our God. Therefore, they glorify God on the day of His visitation. Verse 13, a little more specific. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme, or to governors or sent by him to punish the or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing. When mindful of God, one endures sorrow by suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it and you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to you have been, for to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin. Neither was deceit found in his mouth. He's without blemish. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued, continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on a tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. But his, by his wounds you have been healed, for you were straying like sheep but you have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Now, I'm not going to unpack all of that, but you can see all of those commands to live righteous and holy in a lost and dying world stem from the fact that Christ fulfilled the law on our behalf, and we are in union with him, and since we serve the same holy God who calls his people to holiness, we live in the world in such a way that brings glory to him. So how do we actually accomplish that? by fighting our own sin. And we do it by remembering the gospel. That's the purpose of the Lord's Supper for us. We are remembering in the Lord's Supper the work that Christ accomplished. But we are not only remembering the work that he accomplished, we're, we're remembering what that means for us by being in union with him. And we're remembering the gospel. We're remembering the life and the death and the resurrection and the exaltation of Christ. And we're looking forward to the day that he returns. That's the way we fight sin, is it not? We, we, don't, we don't look at our sin and keep focusing on our sin and looking at our sin. We turn away from that sin and we look toward Christ. It's what we had to do to be saved or we're not saved. And it's what we have to do to live or we're living in disobedience to Him. So when we come together in community, that's what we're remembering. The blood of Christ 
is, is all that we need for our sins. It's what allows us to stand in the presence of God, to be accepted by Him. And so we rehearse the gospel in community. And we remind ourselves that that's the power that we fight sin. We are already holy in God's sight. But since we're still fighting sin, that standing that we've been given, the power that we've been given in the gospel, is what we use as our sword to fight our sin and to mutilate it, to to kill it, to mortify it. And we remember that when we come to the Lord's Supper because it is not our work. It's God's work in us. It's how he's made us. We always remember the indicative and the imperative, right? You remember that distinction? We haven't talked about that in a while. The indicative are all the truths that are true about us because we are a Christian. It's all what God has done. Everything that's been done on our behalf and credited to our account, having nothing to do with us, that is all the, that, that, those are the indicatives. That's where we stand and those are our weapons as we carry out the imperatives, the commands. You cannot do the commands if you haven't partook of the, of the indicatives. If you are not in Christ, you are not going to honor Christ. If you are not already in Christ, you are not going to live a holy life that looks like Christ. So that's why today is the day that you need to come before God. And if you have been separated from Him, if now you're sitting there and you're thinking, I, I don't really understand any of this stuff yet, but I know I'm in some serious trouble You need to talk to somebody this morning. Do not leave this place. Talk to somebody next to you. Come and find me. Come and talk to somebody and say, I'm in some serious trouble and I don't really understand it, but I need some help. Because anybody in this room should be able to take you to the scriptures and show you Christ. Do not leave today until you do that. And also, if you haven't done that, don't partake of this. Partaking of this is for the people who are already professing faith in the Christ who shed the blood and offered his body that these elements represent. So it's those who are in Christ that should partake of this. Ephesians chapter 5, in a wonderful picture of husbands and wives, but in the middle of it, as as, uh, men are being told, husbands are being told to love their wives as Christ loved the church, we read what Christ did. Christ loved the church and he gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot, wrinkle, or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. That's our destiny. And that destiny is sure because that's why Christ died. He, cried, he died so that he would take the church and present the church as a, as a gift to himself, spotless and without blemish, exactly the way God commands sacrifices be given. That's our destiny. So our role in this life is to practice that as we're fighting sin, and that's what we do as we come together. So I want you to take just a few moments and prepare your hearts. If you're serving this morning, please come forward. But just prepare your hearts for worship. We're remembering what has happened. You may have sin that needs to be confessed in your own heart. Now, this is a place not for perfect people. This is not a place for perfect people to come. But it is a place for people to come who are depending upon Christ and His work. It's not a place to come and and pull a slot machine lever and get grace. It's a place to come and remember what Christ has done for you. But you may still have sin in your life that you have to deal with right now with him. You may have sin that you need to get up out of your seat and go across the room and deal with with someone else. Do that. 
We talk about it being a safe place to have real relationships. If that can't happen here, it can't happen anywhere. So this is a place for us to come and remember and to celebrate the power of the gospel in us because of the work of Christ.